Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is not Labyrinths. This is Who's Right, our series of weekly debates, normally only available to our patrons, which you can find at patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. We're putting out this episode of Who's Right on the Labyrinths feed to give you a taste. The debate today is around the topic of remakes. Not just remakes of films and TV shows, but... Personal remakes. Can you remake yourself? And I think I'm going to take the maybe unlikely position that you can't. You kind of just are who you are. And no matter what you do or what happens, you just kind of are who you are. Says the girl who emerged from the slanderous fire of murder accusations to rebuild her life. Well, rebuilding one's life is not the same thing as remaking oneself. Now, let me give some anecdotal reasoning behind this position that I'm taking. Okay. First of all, I remember back in high school, I went to an entirely new school where I only knew one person from my previous schooling experience. And I had a moment there where I thought, hey, maybe... I don't have to be Amanda. I can be Knox. <laughs> I didn't know this. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, at the beginning of the class, like your first ever class of high school, the teacher is like, okay, what's your name and w- how do you like to be called? And it never occurred to me that I could decide how I liked to be called. And I was referred to as Knox or Noxy or Foxy Noxy in my soccer team. And so I suggested to my teacher that I be called Knox. And it didn't hold. In fact, it was very embarrassing because my teacher very dutifully kept referring to me as Knox, even as every single one of my classmates referred to me as Amanda. And eventually I had to ask him to stop because it was just embarrassing me. And that's just one little anecdotal example of oh you you know you think you have control over the way the world sees you or or who you are but you really don't you just kind of have to go with the whims of the way the world interacts with you um but my other further example is simply that i don't think i have changed all that much i definitely think that the world around me has changed and I've had to adapt to those changes. But who I am as fundamentally as a person, I don't think has actually really changed all that much. I still have the same instincts when it comes to things. Um, I still have the same amount of empathy and compassion. I just I'm able to express it better because I have more perspective based upon what happened to me. So I think that As much as we adapt to the world around us and that, quote, changes us, I'm not sure that there's, like, anything fundamentally about you as a person, like, the way that you feel and think and interact that deeply, deeply changes, or do you disagree? 
Well, my personal experience of this, I had a similar Chris versus Christopher moment during the how do you want to be called thing in high school. And when I started publishing, I had to make a decision of what name I wanted on the book jacket. And I decided it was Christopher. And so in the publishing world, I'm Christopher Robinson, right? And to my family and you and other people around me, I'm Chris. And depending on where I meet somebody, I go by both of those names. But the bigger personal remakes in my life have been, I guess, career and and interest-based and outward presentation-based. So in high school, I was both the punk kid wearing a leather jacket with spiky blue hair and a bad religion t-shirt, skateboarding, and I was in the chess club and taking all the AP classes. And so I was a part of that nerd D&D world at the same time. I never quite fit into any one of those worlds. I always had a foot into a second or third world. I was also a computer nerd, by the way. So I thought, well, that's my destiny. I'm gonna be a computer programmer. And when I got to college, I did nothing but engineering and programming and math for two years until I burned out and I dropped out of school. And that was my first big switch where I took a little hiatus and came back dabbled around, took a variety of classes, and I ended up settling on philosophy and creative writing, which is such a radically different path from computer engineering. And can I be the same person who spends his days writing poetry as the guy who spends his days tinkering with computers? Maybe that's the same me. There's certainly different facets of me that I chose to prioritize and indulge. And as I pursued that path, on into my mid-20s and went to grad school for poetry and eventually traveled around the country and the world living at artist colonies, much of the anchoring things in my life kind of fell away. I didn't have a stable geographical location. I didn't have a stable job. My relationships kind of collapsed. And I ended up having a bit of a breakdown where I was feeling very suicidal and writing these really dark suicidal poems. And I ended up moving back to Seattle because I knew I needed stability and that was the one thing I could make happen tomorrow. I could stop traveling around the country. I could just be in one place. And I was hoping that that stability would lead to other kinds of stability. And when I moved back to Seattle, I had another kind of radical transformation where for the last you know five years or so, I had been teaching English. I was Professor Chris. And, you know, I wore tweed jackets and a little Irish cap, and I had my tortoiseshell glasses, and I graded papers. That was my life. I was teaching English to freshmen at Hunter College. And I got back to Seattle, and I didn't have a job. I was kind of adrift still. And I started dabbling in hip-hop again, which I had that's another whole side of me I forgot to mention earlier. Before I went to grad school, I had a little brief stint doing hip hop in Seattle. And I picked that back up with some friends and decided to, I don't know, I guess I just didn't care about the social worlds that I was in. I didn't care how people saw me. I was in a very nihilistic kind of place. And a friend of mine suggested I try stand-up comedy. So, you know, I, f- I felt very protean in those days. I was just kind of in flux and shape-shifting, trying out new things. And when I decided to do stand-up comedy, I decided to do it in the persona of a blinged-out rapper. 
And so I got a bunch of fake gold chains and wore a head-to-toe unicolor outfit with a fitted cap. And I went up there and told jokes about trying to get back into the dating scene and (laughs) didn't even mention the weird fact that I looked like (laughs) riffraff. But, you know, that led to me carving stripes in my beard and then moving through hipster Seattle looking like a strange drug-addicted rapper. But then also going to writers' conferences and still living in poetry world, where, where that was even more incongruous. You met me kind of on the tail end of that phase. How did I appear to you? You definitely appeared like someone who, who you, you seemed creative. You were a published author at the time, but so creative in that sense professionally, but also just creative personally. Well, and I thought that was cool. Your body as a canvas was kind of my motto at that point, right? Yeah, I appreciated the fact that you decided to do something interesting with your canvas. So I guess my question for you, though, is do you feel like maybe, again, it's about what, how do we define remaking oneself? Were you really changing or remaking yourself in some fundamental way? Or were these, once again, facets of a same self? I guess, like, the thing that struck me when you talked about facets of yourself is if you give preference to certain facets of yourself over others, does that choosing to prioritize certain facets over others eventually sort of kick out the facets of yourself that you have deprioritized over time? And in that way, can one actually fundamentally change oneself? I don't know that you need to kick out those old facets. I mean, we're having a definitional argument here. I'm thinking of, say, house remodel, right? You can remodel a house extremely and make it very, very different. You can tear down walls. You can, you know, widen spaces. You can change the whole aesthetic of a space. You can add windows. You can fundamentally reshape it in important ways that change the movements of people through the space, that change where people tend to congregate, that change the psychic dynamics of what it's like to inhabit that space. And it can feel totally different, despite the fact that the foundation and the overall shape and structure of the house is perhaps the same as it was when it was built in 1903. Yeah, but I, I would argue that that's not the same house. Like, sure, it's got the same address. It's at the same location. It's got the same concrete foundation. Yeah, but it's not the house. Like, if you grew up in that house and then somebody bought that house and then totally remodeled it and you went to go visit it to get that feeling of your home again and you were like, wow, this is not that feeling, That there's a reason for that. Okay, well, I think we're agreeing here because I'm saying that it can feel totally different. It can be remade. It can feel new. And yet, it maintains many of the elements that made up the original house. And I feel like people are like that. That if you sufficiently prioritize certain facets of yourself and deprioritize other facets, it's not that those other facets totally vanish. It's that they kind of get layers of sediment over them. And they're still deep in you in some place. The part of me that is an English professor is like still in me, right? And in, when I was English professor Chris, I was not at all like walking around with gold chains rapper Chris in many ways, right? I was more demure. I was less flashy. I was more professional. I was less nihilistic. But that side of me remains. And now that I'm a new dad and, you know, I'm not 
out there peacocking around Seattle in my crazy outfits as much. It doesn't mean that that peacock side of me is gone, right? It's still there, even though my beard looks rather normal today. I think maybe it's, a, it's about inflection points, that we're always continually altering ourselves. And it's a slow process. You do it every day a little bit. And over time, you realize, oh, the person I was when I was 20 is very different than the person I am at 30. And how did that happen and when did it happen? Is there one moment in which you could point to? Most of the time, probably not. Although sometimes enough small changes coalesce that you make a decision. And that decision might be to quit your job or move across the country. And those kinds of decisions are inflection points where a lot of those ongoing subtle changes thread together to become very prominent in shaping the future direction of your life. I guess the thing that I'm stuck on still is, is there a potential alternate version of yourself who would radically choose something I mean, I guess there are versions of yourself who would choose radically different paths, which means that they would have radically different feelings about what the right thing to do at any given point is. And the evidence does show that as people age, even, it's not even like you don't even have to have certain kinds of experiences. Even just age makes you feel differently about the world and about your choices. So you act differently. I suppose like the thing that I'm trying to pinpoint, however, is that I, sure, make lots of different choices now than I would have when I was 20 years old, but do I feel like I'm a fundamentally different person as a result of that? And intuitively, I don't feel like I, my, my consciousness is in some way radically different. Yeah, I mean, you have a continuity of experience you wake up and have your own memories every day. But I also can't imagine, like, I see how the younger version of myself is just a younger version of myself, right? Yeah. Like, it's not like, oh, wow, who's that other person that I used to be, right? Well, maybe to give this a little higher stakes, you know, it's only been a day or two since we heard the news that Rudy Gaudet was, he's definitively done with the justice system, yeah. right? And of course, it's in the news again, and you're thinking about him, and now he's giving interviews and blaming you again. And the question of whether or not somebody can be rehabilitated, and it's a really hard question to ask with such high emotional resonance for you in relation to this case. Can Rudy Gaudet remake himself after what he did now that he has a life in freedom? And he hasn't, as we know, shown any signs of remorse for killing Meredith Kircher. He hasn't acknowledged the truth. Those are big signs that he has, that he would have changed. He hasn't shown those signs. But one thing you said in our previous Labyrinth episode, The Forgotten Killer, that has always stuck with me is that, you know, he's probably not dangerous anymore, simply because we know from research that young men who are flooded with testosterone are in the prime of their life for the ability to commit crimes. And as they get older and their testosterone decreases and their brain fully coalesces, it doesn't fully stop 
you know, changing and uh, into its adult form until age 25 or so, that by the time men get older, they are less aggressive and less violent and far less likely to commit violent crimes, which means that even if Rudy Gaudet is feels that he's the same guy he was when he was 19 or whatever, he's not probably the guy who would kill somebody today just based on hormones. Probably, yeah. What do you, what do you make of that? Um, I mean, that's a question in terms of whether or not you continue to imprison someone. And I think that's a really important distinction here. That doesn't mean that I trust him, right? It does mean that it's probably not in the public's interest to continue incarcerating him. Does it mean that I trust him? No. But could you be fundamentally the same person if in scenario A, you rape and murder somebody and in scenario B, you wouldn't? Can the same person be both of those people? Because that's what we're asking here. Is it enough that, I mean, that's a big change going from the kind of person who would do that to the kind of person who wouldn't. It's a huge change. It's a huge change, sure. But you still think he's fundamentally the same guy? Well, he hasn't proven to be anybody else. Not yet, at least. Hmm. Is that where the burden of proof is? I mean, no. I'm, I'm not in his head or in his heart, so I can't really say who he is. Do you worry about him causing more harm in society? He's, he's already out? causing more harm to society by falsely accusing me. Well, true. So, but violent, this is a little bit too personal, crime. though. I don't feel like I can speak in abstract terms on, on this issue. Do you think that having a daughter has changed you? I feel like the facet argument comes into play where there's a facet of myself that acts according less to self-interest and more to principle because in upholding principles, I am better able to protect my daughter. So I think that I've become someone who is even more sort of dead set on principles. And I'm not sure that that's a good thing because I'm not sure that it's actually helpful to be more principled and less sort of flexible to and adaptive to circumstance. I mean, what would you say about people who go through AA, for instance? I used to be a personal assistant to the author Mary Carr, uh, who wrote the memoirs, The Liars Club, Cherry, and Lit, among other books. She's also a poet. And a big part of her journey was becoming an alcoholic and then going through AA and you know, she found God. She's she's Catholic now in that process. And the world of addiction recovery in particular strikes me as one where people are very consciously trying to remake themselves. Hmm. They're, tr they're going through re-education even and a set of steps designed to turn them from abusive, selfish people who let their addictions cause harm to everyone around them, to people who acknowledge mistakes and ask forgiveness and be a force for good in the world. Yeah, I would say that's actually a legit counter argument because I do think that that is an example of a deep change. Like when your priorities and 
your intentionality radically shifts. So I think that's a good example. And I think that, you know, someone who goes through prison can go through the exact same experience if they are mindful about their experience, about their rehabilitation and intentional. I, I think that is an example, though, that of is the person who chooses to go through that process of intentional change actually different than the person who they become on the other side of that intentional change? Well, that's a, it's kind of the positive version of the cognitive opening theory of radicalization, where you have a person who experiences some traumatic event. You see this often in the literature on Islamic extremism, that a kid who grows up with that cultural background is not very religious and smokes weed and drinks beer and watches TV. And, and then some event happens, his sister dies, something like that. And in a period of grief or trauma, the right person and the right ideology comes in and inserts itself. And the transition can happen very quickly. In some cases, like within two weeks, all of a sudden, you know, this person has renounced alcohol and they've stopped smoking and they're no longer watching TV and they take down the bikini model posters from their wall. And all of a sudden they're all about Islamic fundamentalism. And the reverse of that could be that a traumatic depth of self-despair leads somebody to finally walk into that AA meeting right? Mm -hmm. It's also a cognitive opening. Sure. And we also know that even things like pregnancy and childbirth create these moments of maybe neuroplasticity in someone's life. And marketers know this, right? Their old habits are suddenly subject to change. The product you used to buy because it was habitual and you never really thought, now that there's this new entity you're caring for, suddenly you're reevaluating all your choices. And the marketers know they can slip in there and try and alter your purchasing behavior. So I think that cognitive opening theory might be really useful to thinking about how people change and whether or not you're the same person on the other side, because the person who wants to commit suicide to kill a bunch of innocent people, it seems like a very different person to me than the person who's living his life, hanging out with friends and watching soccer, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, what do you think, listeners? Remakes. Do they happen? Do they not happen? Can you remake yourself? Have you remade yourself? Do you have stories? Let us know. This has been Who's Right? Again, if you're interested in these weekly debates on everything from deep philosophical questions to very silly questions like, is it okay to put the cat in the hamper and close the lid? <sighs> no. Just to see if he can get out. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> then check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Robinson. And stay tuned for our mini-series on psychedelic mushrooms, coming your way very soon. Hello, listener. This episode of Labyrinths could be ad-free, but that requires exclusive access. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become a monthly Patreon subscriber, which will grant you access to top-secret patron-only content, this podcast will self-destruct without your support. Was that too cheesy? Who doesn't like cheese? Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. <laughs> <laughs>